This reading is coming from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13, chapter 4, verses 13 to chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is, is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading is taken from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 until the end of the chapter. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an internal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' Jesus's mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Amen.
Well, I suppose there are very few families that don't have someone in them somewhere who is a bit of an embarrassment to the rest of the family. Um, I can remember when I was quite young, and my brother was quite young, him saying to me that he had definitely heard my grandmother saying to my mother that Uncle Ivor had got Auntie Agnes into trouble before they got married. <laughs> now, whenever Uncle Ivor and Auntie Agnes came to visit, there always was a slight sort of air of embarrassment. Of course, these things were not talked about openly in those days. Uh, and so my brother and I decided what could Uncle Ivor possibly have done? And we decided that perhaps he encouraged Auntie Agnes to go shoplifting. <laughs> That's what we thought. Uh, and consequently, after they got married, perhaps that had stopped. So we decided that if we ever we came into contact with our cousins, you know, their children, we must, and we were in the shops, we must make sure that somehow they weren't doing that or were they still doing it. It was all a big mystery, but, you know, it was an embarrassment in the family. So here we have at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus going home. I think that's a very nice phrase. Jesus goes home. Jesus, we often think about Jesus wandering around and assume that he was quite rootless, but actually he did come from a home. And when he gets there, you would assume that home would be the place where he was understood and where they would have some idea of what he felt was the vocation of his life. But this isn't the case. He gets home and actually he's just an embarrassment really. Um, they want to try and shut him up. They want to get him to come inside and will he please stop going around agitating things and upsetting people and make himself a bit of a spectacle. If only they could stop that, they feel it would be better. Now, I found this morning's gospel really very difficult. And um, aside from thinking of that at the beginning, which I will come back to at the end, and there'll be a reason why I've told you that little anecdote, um, we then get onto these other bits that are really quite hard. So I was very intrigued to read in my commentary that Mark attached high significance to this passage in the gospel. And that rather puzzled me because I can think of lots of other passages in the gospel that I would far rather encounter than this one. But guided by the commentary, I began to look at it and see if I could see something a bit more closely that would make sense. And one of the points it made was that in Mark's gospel, well, in fact, as in all the gospels, really, Jesus is engaged in this struggle between good and evil, between the powers of things that cause human flourishing and the things that actually cause human destruction. And this struggle is actually going on from the beginning of his ministry. And just before this passage, he has chosen the 12 people he feels will help him in this struggle. He's been preaching good news that human flourishing is possible. He's actually been going around, in Mark's terminology, casting out demons before this passage. And surely the idea of people having demons to us might very well mean people who are tortured within themselves 
because they don't feel that anybody can possibly love them. I mean, that's how I would interpret somebody having a demon, somebody being tortured inside themselves because they don't feel that they are actually loved. So he's been going around trying to show that there are things that can be done in this struggle between promoting human flourishing and succumbing to human destruction. And then he goes home and he finds that this work that he's been doing is actually a big embarrassment. Now, home, they say, is where they have to take you in. And so when he arrives home, I mean, I wonder what he thought the reaction would be. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? We have no idea. When he goes home, does he think that his family are going to say, oh, it's great that you've been going about doing this. You know, come in, we'll give you some refreshment, and then you can carry on. What did he actually expect the reaction to be? But the key thing is that the family haven't been listening. Now, of all the people that you would think would listen to you, your family, presumably, would be quite top of the list. No? Yes? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, really. Perhaps not. I know when I was a teenager, my parents were the last people I talked to, actually. Uh, but you would think that your family would listen to you. But you see, not only are his family not listening to him, but the religious establishment is refusing to listen to him as well. In fact, they're accusing him of doing exactly the opposite thing to what he is doing, because they are saying that he is using the powers of, of evil. I, I mean, the word evil is, is rather vague, and I think we need to think about it, but they are accusing him of using um, power, his own ability, his own strength, his own determination, his own vision, to actually be in league with those things that are destructive rather than trying to do something about it. And so therefore I think that the two great significances of this very difficult passage are the questions, first of all, who, for us, who is listening to Jesus today? Is it just us, the Christian family, are people out there listening to Jesus? And then do we have to go a step further and say, well, you know, are we really listening to Jesus? We might think that we are, but actually, are we? It's, it's all a bit comfortable, isn't it, really? Which is why I do feel quite strongly that using the set readings is so helpful, because then you have to grapple with it. Who is listening to Jesus today? And do we feel as a Christian family quite demoralized because we look around and it doesn't appear that many people are listening to Jesus? But could it actually be that it's the people we don't expect who are listening to Jesus, but we really don't want to hear that because we think that we know what this is all about? So I think it raises a very interesting question. Of all the people that you meet this week, who will you think is listening to Jesus? And they may not be doing it consciously. I mean, does that matter? Here's another question. If somebody is listening to Jesus and doing good, does it matter if they actually don't acknowledge that it comes from Jesus? I mean, that's a very interesting question, isn't it? So this week, when you're round and about and you're interacting with other people, 
think about this. Am I listening to Jesus, I shall say to myself, or am I just talking as I usually do? Am I listening? Am I listening to other people? Might they have something to say to me about Jesus that I wouldn't expect to come from them? Because you see, it was his family and the respectable religious establishment who weren't listening to Jesus. So perhaps we should be looking to see where this is happening. And the second point about this is this struggle between good and evil, the significance of this. Now, in the passage, we read the word Beelzebub, or in some translations, Satan. And the way that I personally feel I can cope with that is thinking of Satan as good gone wrong. Good gone wrong. I think there might be shades of doing Paradise Lost at school in there somewhere. But good gone wrong. And Jesus has to get across, I think in this passage it comes across quite strongly, that if you're trying to do something about good gone wrong, you have to start with individuals. I mean, why does he say that if you want to break into a strong man's house, the first thing you have to do is to bind up the strong man? You know, you have to deal with individuals. And I think that's an interpretation of the parable that makes sense because we often feel completely powerless in terms of doing something about the huge things that are going wrong, although there is always something we can do. But it's got to start with the individual. It's got to start with individual people being convinced that the role that they play is a part of this cosmic struggle between things going right and well and things going wrong. So when he's accused himself, and they do accuse Jesus in this passage, of having a sort of psychological disorder, he actually tries to explain to them that if you turn, I've always been rather worried by this phrase, personally, that blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is the eternal sin. I mean, you know, what does it actually mean? Now, I don't think it means blasphemy exactly in terms of speaking, and what you say, because I've never really thought that you encourage people to stop saying derogatory things by forbidding them to do it. I mean, it doesn't work, does it? Uh, you, you have to make them see that they don't want to say these things. But what about the sort of thought that sin is separation from what is good and what is God? And if you keep turning away from that and you don't listen to the Holy Spirit, which is trying to encourage you to turn towards the good and to turn towards God, then actually in some way you are separating yourself from that love and from that flourishing. So that's the way that I tend to look at that. If you turn away, you put yourself in a position of that separation being permanent. But that's not to say that you can't turn back. Now, you may say, well, this is a cop-out. You've got to read this for what it says. But I, I, that's the way that I look at it. So I thought I, I would share that with you. And you may or may not agree. Now, when the family come back, he then um, says, we're all in this together. His family is not just his, his biological family, his genetic family. We are actually all in this struggle between good and evil together. 
And we all have to listen to what Jesus says, whether we're part of the crowd, whether we're the disciples, whether we're the Christian family, whether we're people who might not even think they're listening to Jesus. But we are all in this together. And that's why we don't lose heart, because we have this solidarity. And we have to have this solidarity amongst ourselves, but also amongst the people who don't overtly come to listen to the Christian message because we've got to stick together. We seem to live in the most perilous times. I think I said this to you last time, and it's boring to be repetitious, but you know, whenever I turn on my um, internet to get in, I get the news feed, and always there seems to be some terrible thing that's happened. Elderly people being attacked, gangs going round on motorbikes. I mean, how have we come to this, I ask myself? And then I try and sort of think to myself, well, I dare say, well, I know, we know, don't we, that terrible things happened previously. It's just we didn't hear about them. But there does seem to be a, a lack of faith in the fact that actually doing good and being positive and taking responsibility and realizing that actions have consequences can lead to the flourishing of everyone. But we can't lose heart. We really can't lose heart. Because if we do that, who else is going to have the message that we read in this morning's gospel? That we need to listen to Jesus. We need to see what he's doing about the struggle between good and evil. And we have to consider that we are a part of it. And if we turn away from that, we risk very serious consequences. So just to go back to my story at the beginning, the result of Uncle Ivor getting Auntie Agnes into trouble uh, before they got married was actually my cousin Tony. Now, my cousin Tony was uh, a Catholic priest, a great character, um, and he unfortunately died really relatively young. But I went to his funeral, uh, or his requiem mass, in, in Plymouth Cathedral, and it was wonderful to hear that Tony had been one of those priests who really went round listening to people. There were, they, there were people there who'd been in prison, who he'd helped. There were people there from all sorts of disadvantaged parts of his parish who came along because they wanted to say, thank you for listening to us. And Tony was one of those people who believed that you really could make a difference. And that's the way that he lived out his life. And for me, somehow, one of the most poignant things, and I'd never seen this before, was that he chose to be buried. He was buried in Buckfast Abbey. He chose to be buried, well, in the, in the cemetery, in a wicker coffin. Now, I had never seen a wicker coffin before, uh, and I sort of thought it would be a bit odd. But actually, you know, it was the most wonderful thing to see somebody whose life had been dedicated to helping things flourish be with us in a very natural way somehow. It seemed very natural. And then be taken out to be amongst his Christian community in that way. So I'm not sure I can really explain it to you. But I just feel that, you know, families are funny things. Embarrassments can be difficult. But good can come out of it as it can from us sticking together in this struggle that Jesus is starting when he preaches the good news 
and he goes about helping those people who are tortured by feeling that they are unloved. And that's the message that I myself have gleaned from this very difficult passage. <laughs>